Hello and welcome to another edition of the Public Affairs in Practice podcast. Something slightly different this time around. Um, a discussion I had with Milos Labovic of Super Lobby, uh, where we talked about reputation management and public affairs. Uh, and in particular, we took a deep dive into my latest book, Reputation in Business Lessons for Leaders. So slightly longer format, but I hope you enjoy. Thank you. It's it's an honor and pleasure to to have you here. I know that uh, I've been reading your columns and blogs and uh, whatnot on LinkedIn for some uh, time uh, now. Uh, you have won a lot of awards. Uh, I think it was also last, not, not even that long ago, uh, the Influencer Award. And you have written a lot of uh, blogs, but also books on the on the topic. And the last one to come out is a book on reputation. And um, take, before before I delve into the process of of writing, uh, why reputation? Because I know that you have worked for a law firm. You have, I think, also dabbled into infrastructure projects. I uh, I think. Um, maybe in uh, many moons ago, you were also uh, politically maybe active, but why why focus on reputation as the, it is one segment of of the political affairs uh, weaponry, so so to, so to speak. So why a book specifically on reputation? Um, well, thanks very much for inviting me along today, and uh, you know it's good to see so many people on the on the call. Um, uh, as, as Miller said, whilst, whilst he's very happy to uh, ask questions, we're also very happy to take questions from from everybody else, either on the chat or or in person. So, um, uh, look, I've been yeah, I've been involved in public affairs, lobbying, whichever term we prefer, uh, for a, for a very long time now. And I think one of the things that's changed over those years is, you know, right at the start, I mean, I was much more focused on sort of you know parliamentary parliaments and you know politicians and you know that part of, of of public affairs and then over the years we've become much more um aware of the you know various aspects of communications that we can um that we can use so all those various levers that we that we have access to so whether it's media or social media or you know wider campaigning and all those sorts of things so that's been you know increasingly important to us and with that i think has come reputation management it's been much more around i suppose both a recognition that to have better engagement with not just politicians but you know, many other stakeholders that we have to deal with you know, those with a stronger and a better reputation are more likely to get a fair hearing, are more likely to be listened to, are more much likely to, you know, get even the meetings and, you know, all those sorts of things as well, if their reputation is um, strong. So I was interested in, you know, thinking about that and, and trying to explore that in a little bit more detail, which is what I've tried to do. Okay, I'm that's what I'm having to Oh, and everybody mute. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah. So yeah. So I was I was interested in exploring what that those elements of reputation were. Um, from from that sort of you know strong perspective, but also the recognition that I think I do with this in one of the chapters as well, which is that interplay between sort of political audiences and then reputation in the sort of the, the less positive way as well, which is actually 
political audiences have the ability to really impact on reputations in a way that many other audiences you know don't over a long and sustained period of time so you know they have the levers of power i mean that you know politicians can always say and do silly things sometimes and you know outrageous things but they have their hands on the levers of power so they can pass laws and regulations and you know and have a long-term impact on any organization in a way that other um, audiences can't so Sorry, apologies, Mila. That was a rather long-winded answer. No, no, I, I, I don't want to answer the question for you, but when reading the book, uh, you know, it's, and I really recommend everybody to read because it's, uh, it's a very broad topic, but you use so much examples and uh, do it to such a level of details. And at, at the same time, you know, it's to sum up your answer right now, and also what's, what, after reading it, struck me was reputation is everything you know it's like the it, or at least where everything begins and, and for some people also ends uh so so that's that's what i really uh uh it, it puts a sense of urgency to anyone you know dealing with with reputation and and, and politics just just one step uh back i i've written also a, a book i have one coming out next uh next month i'll, I'll pitch it in a in a second congratulations Take us to that process, you know, like when you when you started writing the book and um, like how did it materialize from ID uh, to actually writing the the book and 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 publishing it? Um, how 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 do you how, how do you go about it? You know, uh, maybe I think also for the people maybe interested in in writing a book from a public affairs perspective and you might be surprised that it might be more more than you think and I, I you probably also get that question a lot like uh how did you write the book you know so take take us into that process yeah this i mean i look i mean i'm i i love writing i mean i enjoy it otherwise i wouldn't do the blog and and, and write so i would encourage anybody uh you know to to get involved and to blog and to, and to write books um it's so i suppose it's, so in the past so i've done several books and there's no one way that I particularly work. So some one of my early ones, I mean, my first book uh, was my PhD. So that was you know, not straightforward to get published, but, you know, that was, you know, was this sort of already existed. Um, other ones, I've just literally sent off emails to the publishers because they were after an idea and I came up with an idea. This particular one was was slightly different. So, um, uh, and, and, the gestation period was slightly longer as well than, than would otherwise be the case. So I started it. So I, I published um, my previous book, Public Affairs, A Global Perspective, uh, with a publisher. And um, he uh, and I pitched this idea to him because I thought there was something in this. I think there's something about reputation, but done in a way that isn't overly theoretical, that hopefully provides some examples. And we can go through you know, some of the ones, that he, uh, you know, today, whether it's, you know, ones about you know, behavior of, of customers during COVID or a whole range of different things. So, but exploring those issues in a way that are applicable, hopefully to um, people just coming into contact with reputation. What do you do? How do you deal with these things? Who should you talk to? Those, you know, very practical sort of ideas. So not too theoretical, nice and practical. And they agreed with me. So I started to write the book and then, uh, then we had COVID obviously. So, um, so I would sit uh, generally here during the day uh, doing my day job 
and then I'd go downstairs in the evening, sit at the same computer and then sort of type the book. So it was, there was, in one way it was quite handy because we didn't really have anything else to do, did we? We couldn't go anywhere or do anything. Uh, so that provided some discipline that I, you know, needed to, to write it. On the other hand, you know, just simply sitting at a computer for most of the day and then most of the evening was a bit of a difficult process as well. But, you know, I sort of forced myself to do it. Um, unfortunately, the, the, the that publisher then went, um, as the way of many um, publishers, then went bankrupt. Um, or what's I say, went bankrupt, but on cease trading. So, um, but the, the gentleman that led it, um, uh, you know, has now sort of launched himself as the, as a, as a, as an agent. So I very, this sounds sort of more impressive i suppose than it actually is but i have an agent you have a literary agent though. i have a literary agent so matthew smith at experiments um is my agent and he found routledge for me so uh that's how the, the link with routledge came about but again you know these things are never straightforward so yes the book existed the, the script existed but then i didn't have a publisher matthew helped me find the publisher in, in routledge and they're very kindly going to um you know publish my next one which i'm just started to work on them probably should be working on harder um uh but yeah it's for me it's it, for me sorry again apology long-winded answer for me it's about discipline i think once you once you have the idea find somebody to help you through it in my case it was matthew um you know get some advice from them think about you know how you pitch it as as you would pitch i mean for those of us that work in consultancy um but even in-house when you're working with teams you know you you're used to a sort of a general pitch process to, to try and get work effectively when you're trying to do it with a book it's the same thing it's who's the audience why is this different you know uh, you know are you likely to sell any copies you know those sorts of things um and and don't be afraid to you know, be a bit proactive and, and, and pitch it out there, which is which is what I've done in the past, and, and Matthew helped me with this time. So, um, and then it's about discipline, sitting down, um, getting contributions from people, which I've done, so interviews and things like that as well. And if that makes it a little bit easier for people to put their, you know, the pen to paper or the, you know, fingers to keyboard, that's and, another way to do it as and, well. And are you a person that writes uh, a lot each day or 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 a little? Like I I, I wouldn't be able to write a book. I don't have the time nor, nor the patience, you know, but I, I write every day just a little bit or, or are you able to make long strides uh, when writing the book? No, so, same as you, Milos. I mean, I think it's, you know, I tend to find if I sort of set myself a rough target of X amount of words per day, thousand, two thousand, whatever it happens to be, then that, that makes it a bit more achievable. Um, you know, other people are very good at just sitting down all day, but look, you know, we all have day jobs. We've all got, you know, many of us have got, you know, other commitments, families, caring commitments, etc. trying to fit all those things around doing the book as well. Um, and, and I'm, I, you know, I'm sure others are on the, the call, you know, the call today and, and it's after the event, you do reflect and go, how did I find time to do that? Because unless you carve out that time somewhere amongst our busy schedules, it sort of doesn't happen. So that's, yeah, you have to be quite, I have to be quite disciplined about it, I think. Excellent. Well, let's, let's delve into some, some dilemmas. You, you uh, talk about politics and we'll get into that uh, specifically, but also the, the media and you, uh, and, I, and I promise not to make any Brexit jokes anymore, but I mean, it is turbulent times in in uh, in London, um, and also I I, I, wrote, I read this great book. I forgot the author. It's called Bad News. It's one of the campaigners from the Lib Dems that wrote it. I 
can't remember who it is, but in your book, you emphasize a lot uh, preparation, being proactive, like basically making sure that you have this reputational buffer uh, before shit hits the van, uh, so to so to speak. But how do you stay afloat in these times and these circumstances? I mean, I've experienced it to uh, to some degree, you know. But at the same time, I think at least as an outsider, London, Westminster, the, the me there, looks like a very hostile environment. Uh, would you, would you, does, how, how do you cope uh, in, in, in such hostile environments? Because one of the things which might be a bit of a critique it, is that I have the feeling that your book would work more in 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 the Netherlands than it would in the UK, but that's that's just an outsider speaking. So, how, how do you cope when it gets more aggressive? Um, well, I think there's yeah, there's several several bits to, to unpack there. I think one is that you're right. I mean, there's the general point. I mean, look, I'm not unique in making this point before, and it's a bit a sort of slightly simplistic way of looking at reputation, but I think it's still quite effective which is the idea of a sort of a bank account so you have you you sort of you know you pay into this bank account you pay into this reputation bank this rep you know through reputation capital whatever you want the phrase you want to use uh you know in advance uh whether it's how you treat your customers your employees the you know the environment etc being good for what you do making those networks and those connections in advance of needing them, all the things that pay into that bank account, then if something does go wrong, it's a withdrawal from that account. Now, most organizations, if they've invested in their reputation, can deal with a couple of different withdrawals and that's fine. But of course, if that starts happening a lot over a period of time and you're not learning from those mistakes that you're making, well, the withdrawal becomes bigger each time until Unfortunately, you then get to zero and then you, you're in, you know, or withdrawal, which is even worse. Um, but that's about in advance the risk management side. It's in advance knowing what you, uh, it's, it's a little bit like the, you know, the Donald Rumsfeld known, known, knowns and known unknowns and all those sort of things. But it, but it very much is in that sort of field, which is, you know, there are certain things you can plan for. You know, there are certain you know, risks that you know any organization will encounter. So you have to have a process in place to deal with them. It's where you don't have those processes. You don't have that procedure. You don't have the spokespeople in place. You haven't prepared properly. You know, that's when it's pretty unforgivable. So, so in advance, yeah, invest. Don't also think, I think one of the other things which I, you know, inc I, you know, I'm equally as guilty as, as anybody particularly, you know, in public affairs and communications, you know, we're under a little bit of pressure, I think, to sort of be on top of so many different aspects of any organization or any client. Whereas the reality is that we can have a good cross section of knowledge, but actually in some of these, in some areas where, you know, uh, you know, where there could be reputational damage inflicted, let's say it's about, you know, climate change for, for want of a better example, ESG sort of issues, you know, we can have a good idea, but we are not the absolute experts. Instead, actually, 
one of the things that we need to do, I think in public affairs, but across the piece in communications, is really work very closely with those other experts and bring them in. So use them, you know, bring in their expertise. And in that way, we can help properly prepare an organisation or a client for the problems that will come their way. If we don't do that, if we try and not quite pretend, I don't quite mean that, but if we try and give the impression that we are absolutely on top of everything all the time, then we'll, you know, we'll get mistakes. Yeah, I, I, I hear what you're saying. And at the same time, you you come back a lot of times in the book to the to the notion of leadership. It's also, you know, uh, a very, you you give the CEO a big role in, uh, in, in, in guarding the reputation of an organization. What would you recommend uh, people here or uh, listening later on that are, aren't able to get that quality time with the CEO or, you know, someone that doesn't value reputation as it, as it should other than shifting jobs but you know i i myself i'm, I'm sure you've also uh encountered it or seen it at different organizations um some ceos or management they're hell-bent on kpis and you know and seeing immediate returns while reputation is is something you know it's i have sometimes the feeling that people at at banking you know they do risk that they understand reputational risk better than some CEOs. Um, tell me, have you encountered it? And how, what would you advise people here? How, how to make sure that it is valued and uh, and that it's that there is invested enough in order to make it work? Because if the CEO doesn't see the, the point of it, it's going to be a, a bumpy ride, I guess. Uh, no, I think that's, that, that, yeah, that's a good point. And I think, you know, for many CEOs, I think now, especially nowadays, there is a, yeah, it, it's becoming increasingly rare that they don't recognise that reputation. Not not least because the pressure on many leaders is to sort of be so closely entwined between the personal reputation and the sort of business reputation of the organisation, if you like. They're, they're so closely aligned um, that they realise that if the reputation of the organisation is damaged in some way, effectively they get damaged as well. So I think that helps to focus their minds quite a bit, the, the implications for themselves, as well as the organisations they lead, and what then happens to them, future job prospects, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there's one, you know, overall element. I think specifically as far as we're concerned, I think for a lot of organisations, it's sometimes because actually we don't reach out enough and people don't really understand what we do enough of the time or what the value that we bring to an organization. So, you know, you can, you know, I, I think this is partly about, if I can say it's sort of good communications on our part, building the um, links with uh, different parts of the business, different parts of the organization, different parts of the client teams, explaining to them what we do, the value that we're bringing, the value that reputation brings, um, you know, making sure we understand their, you know, the pressures on them and the way that they speak and the, you know, the, the, the uh, you know, their fundamental drivers and try and put, try and invest in those relationships with clients and with uh, internal teams in advance of needing them. So I don't think there is a quick fix for any of these things. I think what, you know, what we all have to do is ourselves invest in that. And then over a period of time, 
you know, from a CEO's perspective, not only do they see a coherent team, but they see a team that's working together and everybody then starts saying, well, it's about reputation and this and this driver and we have to get this right. Otherwise, the damage to the organization will be X and Y. So that we all start to pull that together as a coherent whole rather than just us saying it. I think if we just say it on our own, and I think you see this, you know, there aren't many, you know, we have some marketing you know, people on boards, but it's mainly legal, HR, finance, mm-hmm. isn't it? Uh, we don't get many people that do what we do in a day-to-day job, sort of public affairs and, and lobbying, uh, you know, on those senior positions. So if it's just us as a team and we don't have a seat at the top table, because we don't, that's the reality for most mm-hmm. of us, um, they don't, you know, there's no inclination for them to listen. It could be argued. Whereas... If we have worked with HR and finance, you know, these other bits, even if we're not there, then those other people are and they get taken notice of. So we get a little bit of that that, that sort of halo effect from relationships with them as well. And um, a lot of um, a lot of um, a lot of part of your books is is really uh, very handy and it's really uh, a lot of tools and strategies and I think if people would follow it to the letter you know they would come a, a great way at the same time correct me if I'm wrong but a lot of it boils also down to personal relations uh, like personal relations with either um, politicians or uh, journalists How would you, how would you describe, you know, the, uh, I, I would be maybe silly to say in percentages, but like, if you would have to divide it in, you know, internal organization, aligning the organization and relationship management, you know, the, the third bar, so actually going outside, like how important is it, you know, in the end of the day, I think a lot of reputations uh are saved or could be saved you know by simply having a good relation with with individuals how important is that individual connection and how much would you recommend investing in that in the in the bigger scheme of things so yeah well i think there's i mean you know in the book i talk about sort of three phases if you like of the reputation which is the sort of the building part the maintaining part and then the protecting part so the protecting part we can think about the sort of the crisis management sort of end of it, if you like. But certainly for the first part, that building part, I mean, building is about reflecting internally and risk management and, you know, dealing with the things that an organization doesn't do very well, but also being able to push the part that it does do particularly well in. Again, you know, that varies between organizations, but, you know, some of the some of the better, you know, organizations, um, you know, and, and a lot of those, particularly in communications nowadays, uh, you know, really it is about climate change and, and looking after people. So those tend to be two pretty clear, you know, drivers to, to differentiation. So that initial stage of, of building, I think, is is not exclusively, but much more focused on the internal so that you can address the the problems. Then the maintaining part, if you like, is then I think more about that external piece. So I think in these different phases, you know, there's a balance or a different approach to the internal and the external. So in that, in that maintaining part, 
then you can go and talk to people. You can talk, you know, and and you can genuinely prove that, you know, you know, you do something particularly well. And you at the same time know that you're not weak in another area. So you're not pushing the, you know, the the strengths, you know, because you know there are weaknesses there. Actually, you know you've addressed the weaknesses. They're not really weaknesses in that sense, but the strengths really are strengths. And it's that, and that can be more external. And then I think where it comes to the, you know, the protecting bit, well, then that's often much more about the external, isn't it? I mean, the, the, in that crisis situation, of course, you need to work together, but actually the damage is is being done. You know, you, there is a failure or a perception of failure, and it's how you then address that and deal with it. Um, but I think, again, at the end of that phase, I'm sort of not, uh, you know, uh, you know, overly stretching these sort of three phases in any crisis, you know, the initial crisis will be over in a, you know, hopefully a reasonably short period of time. But then it's back to the internal. It's back to making sure that, you know, if there was a failure, that it's now addressed. Because if that isn't addressed, that's where you get the long-term damage. That's where you get the withdrawals from the reputation account. That's where the capital is lessened. Yeah, clear, clear. We have uh, actually two uh, two questions in the in the in the chat box. Uh, I also have a couple, but it's always nice to talk yeah, to no, them. Um, I hope I pronounce your name right. Scherzat. Scherzat, maybe. Um, and she's from Stockholm and wanted to know how has reputation management and leadership changed over the last 10 years? Um, so what's, what's your view on that? Uh, well, I think, in, 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 you know, initially, I think we're just all much more aware of it in our day-to-day jobs. And I think it's much less the preserve and the, and the you know, just, just it's not just up to, you know, the chair and the, the, the CEOs, but a recognition that we all have a role to play in that. Um, not least because, and I think this is the, you know, I suppose the two major things that have changed is is a the the veracity and and the the, the thirst for the media to pour over not the actions of not just corporates but any organisation, charities, NGOs, think tanks, you know, all sorts of organisations now are much more under the spotlight. So we've got that media uh, media piece, uh, and then of course it's sort of ten years, isn't it? But you know, social media. You know, we just all as individuals have much more information at our fingertips. We can all, you know, uh, you know, much more coherently, you know, critique organisations and sometimes just pretty incoherently do it as well. Sometimes we all just spout on social media. Um, but those channels also mean, particularly social media channels, means that we can organise. So those pressures on organisations and holding them to account is also much greater than it was. So I think there's not there's not just one thing. Um, you know, there's various you know elements to this, but I think generally we all have a role. I think we just we all know that we now have a role. So just to be the, the the devil's advocate, and I'm asking probably the wrong person because I'm asking a person who wrote uh, who, who who just wrote a book on on reputation. Have you become overly sensitive to this notion of uh, reputation? And I'm, I'm not thinking as a society as a whole, because we can have a, a debate, but I'm really thinking about the we, uh, 
this 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 collection of advisors around the politician or around the CEO, you know, sometimes have the feeling we have too many of them. And if you know, if you have people advising you on reputation, guess what? You know, they'll they'll start advising you at, uh, on reputation, and they'll see reputational risk everywhere almost. You know, and and you worked with lawyers; they're even worse. Uh, so, so what to to what degree you know should we? Should we uh, take really caution and heed? And and when is it with that we should like let it go? Like, do you have like also filters or advice on that? You know, are the moments that you think, all right, like this is not a big biggie? Do you have filters or? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I think you're, I mean, in a general sense, yes, you're right. There is a sort of, a, 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 you know, some organisations are overly sensitive to any adverse comment, media, whatever, and treat that as a crisis and that's not a crisis that's just a bit of ad coverage um so not everything that's damaging is a is a is a crisis um and if you look at examples like i mean i think vw is the you know i think well the one that i mentioned in the book but you know at the time uh diesel gate and i'm sure there's different phrases that are used in different uh, countries as to you know the problems of the <laughs> You know the testing regime and and whether they were uh, you know the, the the testing was accurate or not um but when this initially gets found out we think well this is the end of vw it's you know it's, it'll be the end of the company you can't trust them anymore etc cetera, etc cetera. whereas the reality is that you know the 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 the, the um the shares do take a dip um but the company recovers now um, how does it recover? It recovers because actually it invests in overcoming the problems that it encountered. So it deals with them very clearly. There are scapegoats or, you know, people that were kicked out, etc. There were also court cases as well in different parts of the world, particularly in the States. But, you know, they invested the time and the effort to, to do that. Now, of course, if they hadn't have had the crisis, if they hadn't have had Dieselgate, as it was, then it wouldn't have had to invest and spend loads of money, frankly, and time and effort, et cetera, et cetera, in rebuilding that reputation. They had to do that. But because their reputation was so strong in the first place, we all like VW, they make pretty good cars and other commercial vehicles and other things as well. Um, um, they, uh, they survive. And they also survive as a brand name, as a company, because they don't just own VW, do they? They own Porsche. They own, I'm trying to remember the names of the ones they do own now. I'm going to say Audi and a few others, or Skoda, et cetera. They own a number of different brands. So even if one suffers overall because of the size of that corporate, that conglomerate, if you like, the damage is less. So again, apologies, a sort of roundabout way of saying is, is yes, organisations can be overly sensitive. And, you know, yes, even if there is significant damage on a reputation, it can still be overcome. But the costs and the time and the effort can be pretty spectacular. Mm. It's uh, coming back to the bank uh, with uh, reputational capital. Yeah. You too much of it and you get into the, the minus, it's, uh, it's going to be a bumpy ride. So I have a... Two more questions. Uh, actually, the the second one is the same one I wanted to ask uh, uh, Jakub Sol. So we'll we'll do that as a as a number two, and first ask Samantha. 
who wants to know how important are discussions around diversity, equity, inclusion? Um, like, if, if I can rephrase it, Samantha, and please feel free to chip in, you know, if, if, if you think I'm heading the wrong way, but to what extent, you know, um, do, I mean, if you would ask any company, you know, everybody would say, yeah, it's, 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 it's really important and you should take it, take it on board at the same time, you know, I remember the, I remember the CEO of Netflix who, who answered this question with, uh, companies like Netflix are terribly positioned to save the world. And I thought that was quite candid, you know, and at the same time, I guess not, not the answer a lot of people wanted to hear, you know? Um, so how, how important are these big social issues and to what extent are companies positioned, you know, to, or is it really, uh, tomorrow's license to operate, uh, and it's all over if you don't take it on board. Are, are times really that different, uh, than, uh, than they were? Uh, I think they are that different. Uh, and I think there are, again, a whole number of reasons why that, but societal, um, uh, societal demands, um, have rightly change and do rightly change over a period of time. It, look, even, you know, what people say, said and did and behaved and the way the companies and charities and NGOs and, and others, frankly, behaved 10 years ago is extremely different to how it is now. And uh, part of that is through campaigning. Part of that is through just different levels of expectation. Um, uh, some of that is through the way that politicians pick up issues and drive them forward and, and move with them over a period of time. So again, there's not just one thing that uh, play here, but but societal expectations do shift. Therefore, companies, if we use companies, but all organisations have to shift with that as well. Some will be better than others, but the general direction is to be proved. So in, certainly in terms of, um, so the environment, diversity, inclusion, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, it's very, very much all, you know, a part of that shift, my view rightly, um, you know, the last sort of five, five years or so, in fact, yeah, probably about five years or so, isn't it now really becoming under increasing more increasing pressure. And of course, then politicians then start to get involved and may well set standards as well. So again, that sort of starts to ratchet things up. Now, some organisations, uh, I think are, are, you know, may choose to not be very good at that, um, you know, and it may be that because actually they have a low profile generally that they get away with it, you know, it doesn't inflict too much damage. But I think what then does drive change are the rules that are changed by governments, um, but also uh, the expectations of those that we work with. And what I mean by that is that, so for instance, when we, you know, if, if a company is particularly, so let's say, you know, I work for, um, a, you know, an energy provider or something along those sort of lines, I will start because I have, because I have a high profile. So as an energy provider, I'm probably a household name. I'm probably not very popular because the energy prices at the moment either, but let's put that to one side. I've got a certain, you know, requirement and people do look to me and I am held to account by not shareholders, but the media and politicians to deliver on the environment, diversity, inclusion and a range of other, um, you know, factors. 
one of the ways that I will make sure that I can deliver is to ensure that those in my supply chain deliver as well. So if you want to work with me, you have to, you know, reach certain standards. So that changes the behavior of other organizations. They, those two will say, well, look, I, I need to deliver this. Therefore, those that work with me and that way, uh, I know trickle down is, is is not necessarily the you know the most accurate of uh, economic theories, as, and uh, as we found out in this country, uh, you know, very quickly and very swiftly recently. But that general principle of pressure applied to other parts of the supply chain does start to have an effect. So, um, so I think for all of those, sorry again, long-winded answer, apologies. You know, for all of those reasons, we start to see and we start to affect change. Partly societal, partly political, partly organisations themselves, and over a piece, then we all reach a, a, a higher standard, a higher, rightly in my view, a, a higher standard. There will always be outliers, but the more that they're outliers, means that they won't get the work, and they're more likely to be the ones that are called out as well. And uh, Struan, the the next question is from from Jakub, and uh, it's actually also one of the questions I wanted to ask is. Can you have a, do you have a case or an example, uh, or actually as, as uh, Jakub uh, frames it, what was the toughest case you have dealt with personally? Um, and maybe, maybe let's, let's see if we can have one that didn't go that well, you know, maybe, and then we'll end uh, the meeting with, uh, what's it called? A best practice, but maybe it wasn't your case, but have you, have you like a, a, a good, bad example of 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 where where things were mis mismanaged, you know, or or or, or simply that was very difficult to to handle. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's there's there are ones in the book that are the ones that because obviously I'd like to claim that everything I've dealt with always has been of course, of course. Of course. Um, but there are plenty of examples uh, in the book of where things haven't gone well, and and there were a whole number during. COVID, you know, everything from, um, you know, hotel chains that, you know, basically kick people out uh, or didn't treat their staff very well through to, you know, I, I support Liverpool Football Club, you know, I, but they got it wrong. I mean, they got it wrong, spectacularly wrong um, when they took the money from the government, you know, the COVID support side of things, um, uh, you know, but they realised that and they moved swiftly to reassure people and reverse their initial decisions. So organizations, you know, sometimes that external pressure does make them reflect. And the ones that, that, you know, deal well with those sorts of pressures are the ones that frankly do something about it and react quickly to that. Isn't, isn't there also a danger in that to be accused of flip-flopping, you know, and, you know, there's, if you handle it badly, that can also be, uh, like blow up in your face, right? Yeah. Uh, no, I think you're right. I mean, you've, you've got, I mean, effectively, you've got, I mean, in my view, you've got two choices in under scenarios like that. There's the realize you made a mistake and reverse it as quickly as possible and give a, a proper apology and explain how it's not going to happen again. Or if you think that that is the correct decision, you stick by it. Whatever anybody says, but you can't then about a week or two later, then do the reversal because then you will be a laughing stock. So you either reverse quickly or you stick by it. And I remember an, an example of a client that I was involved in and um, it was to do with, uh, so it was a charity 
I won't name, I can't name names. I hasten to add. Anyway, uh, and this particular charity. We are, we are all under non disclosure agreements. Yeah, yeah, I, even, even this one, I have to be a little bit careful about, unfortunately. Anyway, um, yeah, so it's a charity, and um, they decided to, um, they came under some pressure along with other charities uh, following a sort of fundraising uh, uh, issue. And they decided that the best thing to do was to um, effectively give the money back. I mean, I paraphrase hugely what was going on, but that was sort of the, the, what they decided to do. Now, that was against my advice because I didn't think it was the right thing to do because I didn't think that the fundraising issue was fundamentally about them or the way that they they had behaved. And there were many others involved as well. Um, and effectively, by doing that, they were going to, you know, you know, raise their head and become even more of a target um, when there was no need to do that. So some of this is about, you know, you know, it, you know, it's a little bit, you know, sometimes it's not, you know, there is a process and, you know, sometimes you have to do, go on a little bit of gut feeling and, and, and understanding of audiences to come up with some sort of judgment. They decided to crack on with that. Their other the huge problem was that, and this was pointed out by the lawyers involved, is they didn't actually have the powers to give the money back in that sense either. So they were making a decision which they eventually would have to reverse anyway. But they decided to do that because they thought that was the best way to protect their reputation. Um, uh, actually, they then had to reverse about a week or so later because they realised that actually they didn't have the powers. Yeah. They'd also highlighted the problem in the first place. by So it, it, it was a textbook, it's gone utterly wrong type uh, approach. But another, uh, but a more positive one, that I, again, I was involved in, uh, again, it was a university uh, in London, but they uh, had continuous problems being targeted by um, the uh, the gig workers union, and they hadn't really thought about what to do. And then, of course, you know what happens over a period of time is that you know the, the attacks keep coming, and they then try to target the student population and things like that. So, I worked with them in. Um, you know, I mean, part of this was about dealing with employment issues, but it was also partly about reassuring members of their own staff about what they were doing and explaining because they hadn't really done that either. So, um, you know, you can build some, um, this is not quite the right phrase, but anyway, some defence mechanisms, if you like, uh, by working with your internal audience, back to your point, you're sort of about, you know, sometimes the balance between internal and external. And if you're under attack externally, actually spending some time with your team and your internal audiences can be of real benefit. And this organisation hadn't particularly done that. So that was one of the things that we were able to, to put in place. But even just actually, you know, responding to the attacks in a slightly more coherent way and having a clear line and statements was more than had happened before. But then also telling your internal audiences, this is our line and this is what we're doing and this is actually the real position so that the audiences get both sides rather than just the sort of the attack side. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. you know, and that works. That, I mean, that, you know, that, that I, I have a question about it because I, I read also in another book, uh, I, I know that you also write about don't, uh, you know, don't, don't get irritated you know don't don't act provoked there's uh i don't know if you know him he's a, a french lobbyist working in brussels david gagan he wrote a book called lobbyist it's it's i i think it's like it's partly his memoirs partly some statements on the eu but he, he makes a lot of observ observations and one of them 
I'd like to, uh, I'm wondering what you think about that. He says that um, we are, as lobbyists, overly, uh, overly, um, we don't hit back, especially towards NGOs. And when NGOs come at us, uh, that we're, we're too afraid to hit back because of reputational risk and these kind of things. And he, he, he his claim is that there are certainly moments then where, where you could and should actually hit back, you know, and uh, I'm wondering, what do you think about that? You know, is that like a, a recipe for disaster or or are there moments where you can show emotions as a company or or, or as a CEO or, you know, and, and draw red lines and say, okay, but, you know, um, um, you know, I don't know, you know, and, and, and also uh, hit, hit back in a similar fashion. Uh, yes, there are. I mean, I, I mean, I, I, you know, the trouble is with all these things, it's very much, you know, circumstances and case by case, there isn't a one way to do any of these things ever. Um, but, you know, should organizations, should companies in particular be, um, uh, you know, more, um, well, should they hit back more? I suppose is what I'm trying to say. And I, I think the answer to that is, is often yes, but, you also run the risk of looking defensive. So I think sometimes, you know, and if you're then having a debate around, you know, this stat or that stat, look, and frankly, if we want to bring it back to Brexit, let's let's do that. You know, you stick a number on the side of a bus and, uh, you know, about the cost of the EU, to, you know, the cost of the EU to <laughs> the UK, and it's inaccurate. But you then have a debate about how inaccurate that figure is. Well, that's not saying, you know, that's that's not getting over the point that actually we pay hundreds of millions of pounds to the European Union type thing. So effectively, you then have a debate around a decimal point here or there, but it's still a debate about that particular issue. So I think that's the real problem for, or the challenge, not problem, challenge for an organisation when hitting back is, first, we have to be absolutely... 110% sure on what you're arguing back about. Because if you're in any way wrong, the attack becomes double. So that's the first thing. But the second thing is, do you really want to have a public bust up about this particular issue, this particular figure? Are you going to benefit from that? Or are you just inflicting more damage because it's going on over a longer period of time, etc.? Actually, are you better off doing the sort of the, you know, the communications equivalent of taking it offline? So deal with it, have a conversation with that, uh, you know, the, the, the group or the activists or whatever that are, you know, the, the, that are going at you, take it away and then start to actually address the issue. That may be another way to do it as well. So, so I think, yeah, you can, but you just have to be incredibly careful about the circumstances of that. Yeah, I understand. You know, one of the things that I appreciated also from the book is um, some things might uh, might actually be almost read like no-brainers, you know, like, oh, yeah, we should do this and we should do this. But I think the difficulty in, is in the execution, you know, like little things like having a, having a already Q&As ready when 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 something hits the van you know or having speeches ready or or these like little, little things just doing your homework you know and i've seen it you know that even at 
like even at 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 the highest level on the with with the biggest stakes, Q and A's are not ready. You know, like somebody, like or you know, people assume that somebody made them. You know, but nobody made them, of course. If you have to assume, <laughs> then it's probably yeah. not 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 the. Totally I, wrong. I, I I wanted to ask you one more question, and then uh, I'll, I'll I'll again uh, give the floor. Uh, well, isn't like the worst uh, line of defense is, and I've seen it too many times. The sorry not sorry not sorry uh, press release is like, I'm sorry if we did something that made you feel. <laughs> we just with like people get like go berserk, you know, because often they'll feel like my feelings are not the problem, but your actions are, you know, and. And yeah. somehow, you know, I, I think the legal team looks at the press releases then, or you know, so that nobody makes any legally binding statements. But I think that's that's kind of the worst of it, the worst uh, of, of of apologies, I guess, right? Or the or the worst. It can only bring you more, drag you the more down, huh? Yeah, it is. It's the it's the sorry, not sorry, uh, you know, press release uh, or tweet or something along those lines. Uh, no, absolutely, and. You know, that it just winds, but I'm, I'm desperately trying to remember. There was one just in the last few weeks that I remember, and I can't remember the name of the organization that that, that, that issued it. But um, yeah, it, you know, it's, it's you know, you're not going to overcome any damage by issuing a, a statement like that. Um, you know, you're, you know, I mean, we're all, look, I work for, with lawyers for a very, very long time, most of my career. I don't, you know, not at the moment, but I, I did. Um, uh, and as with any types of communications people as well, you get, you know, lawyers that get it and lawyers that don't get it. Um, but if you can invest the time and the effort in working with those teams, then normally actually you can come up with a form of words, which doesn't open the, you know, doesn't provide the, you know, the liabilities that lawyers worry about, but at the same time does give you the genuine apology for behavior or actions or whatever it is that, you know, that is required by not just the media, but by potentially by consumers and donors and, you know, shareholders and, you know, a whole range of other audiences that, that any organization has. So part of that, again, is my point earlier about, you know, investing time, resources and effort into building those relationships internally before you need them. So you're not rushing around desperately trying to put the, you know, sorry, not sorry press release together. Um, but I think the other element to that is 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 that personal bit is is the human side of it. I mean, again, that's not you know it's it's about reputation, but it's about communications and you know and the things that we all do you know anyway. And some organisations, when their reputations are are under threat, do sort of veer into sort of corporate speak, whereas it should still be you know wherever possible the chief exec, uh, the senior leader making the apology and. Um, you know, being genuine in that. Genuine, yeah. Uh, so we have another, I think, uh, six minutes uh, left uh, to this uh, webinar. And as as I told you in the when we met beforehand, our aim is always to leave people, you know, uh, gasping for more. You know, and uh, I think that's uh, where we're heading the right direction. Are there any more questions to Stuart from the audience, from the pros? some maybe case you're working on something specific something more culturally no 
no question because I if not then I have one I cannot imagine no one has one but might be while they're typing up while they're busy typing away their essay uh, um how about crisis you know like uh like a lot of things uh, work in in normal periods but to what extent you know uh do crisis situation uh differ from normal you know reputational management and what is your pavlov reaction when when you get flown in to handle a reputational uh, crisis, like what what is the first things, first three to five things that you do? Uh... Uh, first three to five things. So I mean, I think generally what uh, is always very useful to do is just get everybody to take a breath, um, because invariably, you know, the pressure is there, uh, particularly for the chief exec or the senior leader. Um, it is taking over their day-to-day operations utterly and completely and probably will for a number of weeks as well. And that's often the bit that's you know, largely missed is that, you know, a normal organization, an organization has to, to function, you know, sorry. Yeah. An organization has to continue to function even while this is other thing, uh, you know, is happening and crashing away, uh, you know, around them and all the time and resource and effort are concentrated on that. And they're not the day-to-day operations. So I think that's one thing. So take a breath, but also just explain that this is what will happen. There will be pressures, but they need to allow themselves some time to run the business or organization normally, at, you know, as well as this. So that's so that general scene setting and breathtaking, I think, is the first thing. Second thing is just making sure really that you have the right people around you in terms of the room. Um, you know, so you know, is it the lawyer and the HR and internal and external and all those sorts of things. Now, some of this may well have been covered by any crisis plan that an organisation already has, but often one doesn't exist even in bigger organisations or it hasn't been updated or whatever. So make sure you've got the right people in the room um, and then get them to focus on the problem at hand and ask the difficult questions about is this you know, is this real? Is this is this actually a problem? Have we really and utterly, you know, mucked it up? Have we got this wrong? Because then that dictates how you go forward. It dictates the statement and the approach. There's no point, you know, utterly defending yourself if 10 minutes later you suddenly find that actually you are guilty. You have got it wrong. There are problems. Um so sometimes that needs a little bit of time. That's not always instantly obvious. And, and if it isn't instantly obvious, then start the communication with audiences anyway and make sure we know who those audiences are. But start the communication with those audiences, even if you don't have all the information there. Audiences tend to be quite forgiving as long as they're hearing from you. If they're not hearing from you, if there is that vacuum, that's when real problems start. So that's my general sort of approach and, and, and starting position. Clear. Um, I, let me see if we have one more uh, time for one more question. Does anyone want to ask something? If not, then I'll take the, the one, but uh, I'll be happy if someone else does. Um, I guess, I guess not. Um, Stuart, uh, Stuart um 
my question uh, would be uh what is your own personal favorite of the book like what 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 do you think is like your 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 you think you would advise yourself or thought like oh i would uh, i wish i knew that sooner or earlier in my career um i think that's well i, I suppose i've got two two well look i suppose there's an overall response which is what i try to do in the book is draw on the expertise of others so a little bit similar to as i sort of suggested at the start is we don't have to pretend to be instant experts in in everything actually just talking to some well-informed people in different areas so whether that's about i don't know everything about sd you know sustainable development goals or um you know talking to people that you know absolutely deal with the data you know side of it or um you know i had a very interesting chat with a lady that deals with um you know more human rights aspects which is you know particularly important for those that are dealing with you know different international audiences and maybe you know a uk based person is not going to know about particularly but should be because of you know more international pressures so i liked that part and that, that and then and out of all those various conversations which are in the book i think the one around the sustainable development development goals so um uh, she was somebody I used to work with, uh, Paulina Murphy, who, who uh, works on the, you know sustainability development goals SDGs. Um, I found hugely interesting because uh, whilst I have some knowledge and some expert, actually really getting to grips with those made me appreciate that you know if any company, particularly company, are going to deal with climate change, actually you can't just do this with a bit of offsetting here and there which i think is is what many have come under uh, you know pressure for it's not quite greenwashing because it's sort of it's sort of right but actually it's not dealing with the fundamental problems of any organization so i found that you know you know hugely uh, you know interesting and i think you know so i suppose that's not about knowing about at the beginning of the career because nobody gave a what's it about those sorts of things at the beginning of my career but they certainly do now and so and for me when i'm writing the books it, it I'm, I'm educating myself as well i'm finding out about things like the sustainable development goals um and i'm learning about things so i would absolutely um you know i i take a general rule I'm not sure how accurate this is but the general rule of you know if i find it interesting when i'm writing about it and learning about it from others then i'm sure other people out there will also find it interesting so that's my that's my general approach to uh, you know to writing these books as well yeah well thanks uh Stuart. we we came to the end of this uh session and i know i for one have many more questions but I would really everyone recommend do you have a copy by the way at hand because I I, I only have the digital one do you know what I should have, I should have put one just around me it's in a it's in a box um I, oh, I went, okay then nothing will show my needed. my book <laughs> my rubbish uh my rubbish and um, filing system in my loft uh where I you know do my work from nowadays because we're all working from home uh, they're in a box I'll, around I'll, the corner I'll, 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 I'll do a suggestion uh not only to promote my uh my newsletter but for all the people that are um I'll make sure that because our next blog uh, which comes out on the newsletter will be on reputation Man uh, management will of course promote your book and I think we can even maybe offer a discount we can offer a discount and we can put a link in so everybody can get exactly. the, that from from the publishers so yes we can we can do that exactly we'll, we'll do that thanks again to it uh for attending thanks all for all the people for being uh here it was uh 
you know, excellent uh, webinar again. And I wish everybody uh, a nice evening and I'll see you next uh, time on, on LinkedIn or wherever. Thanks again, everybody. Brilliant. Thank you.